welcome to The Race to the White House. For the last nine weeks, we have been debating and dissecting everything that happened on the campaign trail in the lead-up to the election of the 45th President of the United States. We are now at the end of a presidential campaign that has tested the stamina not only of the two main candidates, but also the American people. It seemed impossible... It seemed unlikely, but it's really happened. Donald Trump, despite his lack of political experience, despite his loose nature with the truth and impulsive temperament, despite the serious allegations levelled against him, is now the president-elect of the United States. Some say that hate and fear won this election. Others say it was America turning their back on consensus politics. Yet there is no denying that Trump garnered the support of 59 million Americans. I'm your host, Emma Lancaster, and I'm joined in the studio now by Senior Fellow at the United States Study Centre, Tom Switzer. Welcome, Tom. G'day, Emma. And Associate Professor at the United States Study Centre, Brendan O'Connor. Welcome. Good to be talking with you both again. What a shock. Uh, It appears we are now in a new world order. Some are calling it a Trump apocalypse. Others are happy the US came up Trump's. Um, But will Trump be able to deliver what he promised and make America great again? And will we see a new side of Trump? And and what about that wall? Uh, We are going to discuss Trump's path to victory, what a Trump presidency might look like, how the rest of the world is responding, and where to next, as we digest the news that Donald Trump will hold the keys to the White House come January 2017. So I think the most logical place to start today, uh, Tom and Brendan, how did this happen? How did we not see it coming? And um, what was Trump's path to victory? Well, look, I think that a lot of the pundits and pollsters and forecasting agencies clearly misread the widespread sense of angst in America that has culminated in the rise of Donald Trump. Many of us over the last year have recognised that he has tapped into a sense of grievance, but hardly any of us thought that the folks that he was tapping into, there'd be enough of them to beat the Clinton machine, the ground game of the Democrats to get out the vote. I suspect what's happened here, and we'll probably know in coming weeks and months, is the shy Trump factor. This is a case where we've seen this in Britain over the years where People will tell pollsters one thing, and then they'll do something different in the polling booth. And in the case of Trump, clearly there was a widespread perception, certainly among the elite, that if you supported Trump, you were a bigot or a racist or a deplorable, as as Hillary Clinton put it. And uh, you're ashamed to tell pollsters this. But in the privacy of your own polling booth, you do something different. And my sense is there's a significant segment of Americans who are shy Trump voters. There's a popular uh, bumper sticker on cars in many of those Rust Belt states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And it reads, vote Trump, no one will know. And I think that says it all. Yes, and I think I'd reiterate that on younger people. I mean, my uh, children and myself spend a lot of time watching John Oliver, uh, Trevor Noah, uh, Samantha B, all sorts of other people who, uh, you know, have been piling it on for Trump, and it's been uh, it's been tremendous comedy. Uh, but if you're a younger person and that's in your culture, you're not going to be too open about supporting Trump. The younger vote probably wasn't crucial, uh, but it's probably part of that story that Tom's telling. I mean, polling after this election in the United States needs to sort of go back to basics and look at what their methodology is. Think if people aren't able to be reached on the landline, Mm. you know, polling just needs to take a really hard look at itself because it 
it has a really important place in journalism and all of us who comment on it can't just uh, you know make a few phone calls to the United States or wander aimlessly across the country and talk to people uh, you have to rely on you know data that is, gets at thousands of people or the views of, of in the United States case millions of people so you're relying on polling if you try to be objective uh, as I think we've tried on the show uh, you've got to go with the numbers and the numbers were terribly wrong uh, particularly those state polls in places like Wisconsin even in Pennsylvania they really showed that it was very likely that Hillary Clinton would win, and they were dead wrong. So uh, my relationship with polling is over for uh, until they get their act together. <laughs> I don't think you're alone there, Brendan. Now, Trump, I think, certainly defied expectations in the Rust Belt with projections of his victory in the once reliably blue states of Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, finally forcing Hillary Clinton to concede just after 2.30 a.m. Eastern Time U.S. For Clinton, though, it was painfully close. She took uh, Virginia in a nail-biting race. Uh, she came out strong in the West um, and New England and initially sent her supporters home at 2am with campaign chair John Podesta, declaring that every vote must be counted. Uh, but within about an hour, the race was called. And according to the New York Times now, the Electoral College is looking like Clinton is sitting at 228 and Trump surpassed that magic number of 270. He's sitting at 279. Um, now, Clinton, though, when you look at the numbers when you break them down she actually won the popular vote by a very slim margin she got 47.6% whereas Trump got 47.5 so how could she win the popular vote but still not become president could you explain how the electoral college system works well we've been here before in 2000 when George W Bush defeated Al Gore for the presidential election Al Gore won the popular vote and George W Bush admittedly in very controversial circumstances due to recounts in the state of Florida, won the Electoral College vote. So this has happened before in American history, but it's very rare. And how it works is uh, each state has a number of Electoral College votes that's in proportion to the state's population. So, for example, California, which is the largest state in the United States, it has a, it has a, a total of 55 Electoral College votes. And then the next largest is Texas, that has a, a 33 and then the next two are New York and Florida, and they have 29. Then you'll have states like Wyoming that only have three. So it's all in proportion to the population. And in the case of uh, those Rust Belt states, you've got Wisconsin, which is 10, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, which is, I think, 20, uh, Ohio, which is 18, and Michigan, which is 16. So as you can see, that's a pretty sizable chunk of the electoral map. And for Trump to have won all four of those Rust Belt states given that most of them usually vote Democrat at the presidential level, was a most impressive performance. I think, you know, the 2016 election, it was expected to hinge on the surging turnout of Latino voters um, for Hillary Clinton and whether or not she could persuade enough African-American voters to emulate that. Um, the Guardian is reporting this morning that of the of um, the one in three Americans who earn less than $50,000 a year, a majority voted for Clinton, but a majority of those who earned more backed Trump. So most white voters are both um, sexes and almost all ages and education levels backed Republicans. So was this an election decided by class and race and not gender like we previously thought? I think the gender gap wasn't as big as people like myself might have thought was the case. I mean, there's quite a, I mean, women overall voted for Hillary Clinton uh, and men overall voted for Donald Trump. So there's quite a gap there, but it's not, it's pretty much what Obama had, very similar numbers there. 
The story with uh, wealth is a complicated one. Uh, African Americans still voting at around 88% uh, for Hillary Clinton and exit polls show Hispanics around 65% or a little bit higher. And those groupings are disproportionately people who are earning under 30,000. So they make up a quite a large chunk of those earning under 30,000. Whites earning under 30,000, my sense from what we saw in earlier polls, and look, I, you know, take some of that with a grain of salt, but what we saw earlier is a sense that whites earning under 30,000 tended to support Trump. I think there's quite a lot of good evidence. If we look at Ohio, where Sean Trendy's done analysis over the last four or more years, there's a lot of the rural vote really came out for Trump, which really helped to us sort of in smaller towns. Uh, whites in those areas in uh, northern Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, really helped Trump get over the line. The really big gap, which we see in the exit polls, and we saw it in the polls all year long, was there was a 40 to 44% gap uh, on white men without a college degree between Clinton and Trump. You know, tr- those low information voters who probably uh, somewhat disengaged with politics, don't vote every time round, uh, that's the group I would have loved to have seen surveyed all year long to work out. How do these people get their information? What appeals to why, why is Trump so appealing to them? And uh, how many more of them are going to come out to vote that didn't vote for Romney? And there just wasn't that seemed an obvious thing for me for journalists and data journalists to be spending a lot of time on. And there was a lot of dismissal of Trendy's argument, basically mm. saying he didn't know what he was doing. Mm. Uh, that guy looks pretty good today. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got a column in Real Clear Politics. Uh, not too, you know, having it on too much, but there's a fair bit of I told you so. Yeah, I used to work with Sean Trendy at the American Enterprise Institute in uh, the mid to late 1990s. And he's a very um, modest chap. Um, but I haven't read this article in Real Clear Politics. But um, for those of you who are listening, interested in this very subject, uh, it's probably worth checking out Brendan's recommendation and, and, and going to realclearpolitics.com, Sean Trendy, because he was saying after the 2012 election that something like 5 million angry white men did not vote <laughs> in the 2012 election. They didn't like Obama and they didn't particularly like Romney because they saw him as a creature of Wall Street. Yeah, and if someone crack. could tap into those guys, they could win the yeah. 16 election. I and mean, that he, was the sleeping giant. We all talked to the Hispanic vote, which is going to be in some ways the, the wave of the future, mm-hmm, but not mm-hmm. all of those people, as we saw in Florida, Trump got about 30 percent or so of the Hispanic vote in Florida, which is remarkable. The Hispanic Latino vote is complicated. There are Cubans, there are Puerto Ricans, they're wealthy Colombians. Um, a lot of diversity, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a more complex story. Mm-hmm. But there were 47 million white Americans who didn't vote in 2012. And given that the Republicans have got a real advantage amongst whites, uh, getting those people registered, getting them to the polls. Mm. Uh, Trump's done a better job there than I think some people imagined he could. And that... That was always a fairly obvious thing, you know, spending more time analysing. I, you know, didn't have the money to fly over there and have my own polling company, but I wish I had it. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. Is this the election result where Trump is now president-elect uh, it's only possible in a system that allows non-compulsory voting. What percentage of Americans didn't actually vote in this election? 
Well, that data tends to be a little bit rubbery. You know, it's not a precise figure that we get on voter turnout. So you get different numbers on different websites. Even been trying to look up that over constantly over the last couple of hours. Uh, I think it's down towards fifty percent. So one of the things people were saying was, if Trump can suppress, well, you know, by maybe depressing turnout by making it a very ugly and nasty campaign, and a lot of derogatory talk uh, that. You know, it turns a certain group of people off politics to think, why should we bother? If that's one of your first elections that you follow as a younger person, I imagine turnout for people under 30 will be well under 50% would be my hunch. Uh, that was all going to be very good for Donald Trump. So I think he's got targeted some uh, micro-targeting, probably better data analysis than we probably realised. Some of those rural white voters, small-town white voters in the Rust Belt, and uh, probably people uh, under 30 haven't turned out in the way they did for Obama. And Obama yep. has got to be seen, I think, as the exception to the rule mm. on under 30 turnout and African-American turnout. There was uh, less African-American turnout in Detroit. That's going to make a big difference to the overall Michigan vote. And less in uh, Milwaukee, two centers where there's a lot of African-Americans. So I want to cast our minds forward now to the 20th of January 2017 when Donald Trump takes office. I think he will arguably present more unknowns than anyone who has ever been elected uh, to lead the executive branch and serve as commander-in-chief of the U.S. military. Uh, Like we've said, he has no previous experience in government. Uh, His relationship to the Republican Party is um, pretty complicated and his stated positions on any number of policies take any issue can be extremely vague. So he's shown over the course of this election that he is unconstrained by um, many norms. You know, who knew you could say you would sexually assault a woman and still become president of the United States. So what will a Trump presidency look like? Well, I think you hinted at it. He's an erratic character and he lacks a core governing philosophy. The other thing to bear in mind about this fellow is that from 99 to 2011, he changed political parties five times. So The power of his reverse gear and U-turn are probably up to best international standard. That said, you know, he's tapped into a real sense of grievance. He's been consistent on a couple of issues, on foreign policy, on the issue of subsidising allies' defences, and moreover, a protectionist trade policy. Uh, My concern with the trade policy is that if indeed he puts into practice what he he says he will do, that is a 45% tariff increase on Chinese goods and services, That'll not only increase the costs of goods and services for the battlers he's ostensibly trying to help, you know, textiles, clothing and footwear, Walmart, that'll all go through the roof. But moreover, he'll trigger a trade war with China and other states in the region, and that's more than likely going to precipitate an economic recession. So I think his policies are fraught with the danger of unintended consequences. And he's got to be careful, though, because if he backtracks dramatically from some of these provocative policies, he may well upset his core base. I think Tom's dead right. I mean, I've been trying to think of parallels of people who've been elected, maybe Abe in Japan, Berlusconi in Italy, but these are, you know, middle powers. Um, This isn't the most powerful nation in the world. And how a president is really tested is often things that occur externally, things that they don't have control of an Al-Qaeda attack 
or of, uh, you know, rising problems of Vietnam in the 1960s. So it's how you react to things that you didn't bring on, maybe you didn't even anticipate. Uh, That's the real test often of presidential skills and character. And with Trump, we've never seen a capacity to not overreact to a taunt, to a situation. He takes it on very head on. So if there's a terrorist attack on the United States as Trump is president, the way he reacted to the Orlando attacks, to the San Bernardino attacks, was with a petulance. Mm. And, uh, mm. and mm. Uh, you know, and uh, he reacted like a sort of angry uh, kind of grieving relative rather than someone who's a statesman who's got to pull back and say, look, we've got to address this problem of terrorism. It's, it's a serious and difficult problem, but it shouldn't mean banning uh, potentially a quarter of the world's population from your country. That is going to be unconstitutional. It's going to lead to enormous backlash. And the unintended consequence, and we see, I think, this from the Bush period onwards, if you talk up uh, you know, the Muslim world as being a, a place of festering kind of violence and terrorist activities, it does have elements of being a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, we see people identifying with jihadist movements on the internet as a way of, uh, you know, dealing with their own psychological issues. Individuals in the West, we've seen this a lot. Where once women might have gravitated to rock music or punk or rap, you know, they're suddenly trawling the internet looking at ISIS websites um, because they're, you know, they're a misfit or they're angry at their parents. Mm. Um, So you've got to be more sophisticated about this type of thing and realize how to, you know, you bleed it by some extent by making it into something which you you don't exaggerate its power. You say, look, these people are actually pretty pathetic in some ways running around with medieval views, and they're pretty small. This is, you know, that, that's not the majority of Muslim opinion, of course. So I think Trump, to be able to talk about this in a sophisticated way, is, is really one of the, I mean, my big fears. I think throughout Trump's campaign, um, we've seen him make attacks on religious and racial minorities. As of this morning, Trump has removed his campaign releases from his website, including the December 2015 call for a ban on Muslim immigration. Do you think this signals a change in his policy or the starting of a revisionist kind of post-fact history? What's going on? Uh, he's, uh, you know, he, he, he's jumped into the, some of these positions. Uh, as I said before, um, before discussing them with experts. I mean, that will be the really interesting thing, Tom, is whether he can bring people into government service who know how the system works, have a good grasp of the issues, who are genuine experts and who can and he'll, who he'll be willing to listen to. And uh, the evidence to date is pretty limited that he has smart, sharp people around him. Uh, I think he's got Mike Rogers, who was a former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He'll have a good chance of being a national security advisor, perhaps even a secretary of state. But I just don't know who else of uh, high stature, uh, high quality stature he has around him. I mean, there's people like Rudy Giuliani and the New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, but they're in many respects widely regarded as damaged goods, aren't they? And Newt Gingrich. I mean, Newt Gingrich Mm. is a a player. These people who are past their political prime, Mm. uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani, 
sort of uh, screaming on every given occasion during the yeah. uh, during the Trump period. And to appoint Chris Christie, which a lot of people had predicted as Attorney General after this Bridgegate affair, where he got into the petty politics of someone who disagreed with him in New Jersey as a New Jersey mayor. He closed down a couple of lanes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, or his staff did, whether he knew and about it or not. they got busted for it just recently, Yes, yes, very much so. Christie couldn't come out on the last weekend of the campaign mm. because he was too close to this pathetic sort of action for, for petty revenge mm. against uh, a local To what mayor. extent will that hurt him in the confirmation hearings if Trump selects him as his attorney general? Well, the Republicans are in control of the Senate. So when you've got the majority, you can push your nominees through a bit easier. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's the filibuster, you know, the thing that the Democrats have been toying with getting rid of that now they'll hope that the Republicans <laughs> won't get rid of. I mean, at the beginning of the new Congress, the Republicans p- can pass a simple procedural rule to say the filibuster, which is basically an, a, a way of blocking nominations going through or blocking legislation, they can do away with that. Now, they probably won't because they'll fear a Democrat majority at some point in the future. Mm. But that's the last tool the Democrats have. They lost the House, lost the Senate, and lost the presidency. Mm. And on that note, isn't that fascinating, Brendan? A month ago, we were talking, and we were hardly alone, but the overwhelming consensus among the pundits and experts was that in the wake of that Access Hollywood videotape of Donald Trump's extremely lewd remarks about women, we all said that the Democrats will win the White House, the Senate, maybe even the House. Not many people said they'd win the House, but they'd have a good chance of winning the House. Well, my, oh, my, in the course of a month... The tables have been completely reversed. Yeah. The magic of politics. Yes, I mean, I think that FBI uh, investigation, reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, looks like it mm. was. Um, well, that was a turning very, point in the polls, wasn't very it? Very unfortunate mm. timing for Hillary Clinton. Mm. I mean, I think her campaign has got a right to be very angry at James Comey because mm. what we found out is, well, Comey could have done all of this before the election. And being able to go to the Congress after the election and say, I took it seriously, we investigated it with all our energy, and it came to nothing. nothing. So that rule that you're not supposed Mm. to intervene uh, Mm. in the sort of high point of the electoral season as an FBI, you know, organization, he should have stuck to that basic rule. Do it behind the scenes. And if something explosive was there... You know, try to get the details rather than just uh, make this kind of blanket claim. Bear, so I think bear, bear in mind, though, that his decision to reopen the investigation wasn't just the only setback for Clinton that week. It was also the uh, decision to increase health care premiums 25% and then all those allegations about influence peddling between state and the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, I think the health care stuff is really interesting. I mean, that is really something that Trump will be able to achieve. He's promised to repeal Obamacare. Ryan and the Republicans are very hot on this. This is a thing that they'd all agree on. Uh, So Obamacare will get repealed and it will be poorer Americans, some of them who have voted for Trump, whose children, largely, in many cases, these people are probably moving towards being able to get uh, 
Medicare, Medicaid, some of the older people, but it would probably be their children who suffer from not having Obamacare. Yeah, that's. I find it really interesting that uh, just like Brexit, I think Trump's victory is a rejection of the status quo. But um, you know, people were getting frustrated with multinational companies that don't pay their fair share or trade deals weighted in favour of the boardroom, perhaps um, rather than workers in the shoproom floor. But it is kind of ironic that Americans have chosen a billionaire who hasn't seemed to pay his taxes for a couple of decades to be their champion. Well. Emma, this whole election and the election results are filled with all sorts of ironies. Where does one begin? The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. So you're listening to The Race to the White House on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to theconversation.com or your favourite podcast app and look for The Race to the White House. I'm here with Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor. We have been discussing what a Trump presidency will entail. And now is a fun fact for you. Canada's official immigration website crashed after Donald Trump's unexpected success in the US election last night. So application forms on the Canadian government website appear to fail to load and website users reported extraordinarily long loading times to access basic areas of the site. It came as there was a huge increase in the number of search hits for Move to Canada. And according to the results from Google, there was also a big spike in searches for the end of the world. Um, But now we're going to consider what a Trump presidency means a little closer to home and what Trump's relationship is like with Australia. So many Australian politicians came out before the election and condemned Trump. Uh, Senator Pauline Hanson was seen popping a bottle of champagne uh, to celebrate his victory last night in front of Parliament House. So what will a Trump presidency mean for Australia and is it likely he'll be invited down under? Well, I think John Howard was right this week when he said that the US alliance is above and beyond any one politician, whether it's the President of the United States, Prime Minister of Australia or a legislative leader uh, in Washington or Canberra. I think he's right. But then again, Lord Palmerston's dictum that a nation doesn't have permanent enemies and eternal allies. Our interests are permanent and eternal. I think that still holds sway. And if America's interests do not overlap with our own, then Canberra should say no to Uncle Sam. Now, what does that mean with respect to Donald Trump? It's not altogether clear because he hasn't really spelt out what his position is on the South China Sea. And if he follows through with a tariff trade war with the Chinese, then it's more than likely we'll get caught in the crossfire. So that's not in our interests either. Brendan, do you think Australia will be forced to decide between trade with China or security with US? No, I think this probably gives Australia more wiggle room if we're sensible. I mean, I think, uh, you know, to quote another leader of an Australian party, Kim Beasley has basically said, if Trump wins, uh, the alliance should be uh, on hold. There should be a sense of sort of wait and see. So I think there is one side of politics thinking, well, let's not panic. Uh, or let's sort of uh, give a public face that we're not panicking. But behind the scenes, I think everyone's in the in alliances with the United States has got to be thinking, how is this guy going to behave? What, you know, we have no record to go on. He's never had any sort of uh, held any public office. So that the sheer degree of unpredictability about Trump would, um, I think, make it sensible policy to just be uh, ambivalent, just to hang back, mm. um, just to say, look, you know, we've had a long relationship with the United States, but we're thinking about a lot of other issues at the moment, and we're pretty busy. 
overplaying this hug them tight approach, which Tony Blair tried with George W. Bush, that can backfire pretty badly as Blair's career shows. Um, he got far too close to George W. Bush, drawn into the Iraq war. And Tony Blair is, is a broken man and he's a pariah in his own political party. So I think that's, a, that's really a lesson for politicians here. For the past nine weeks, at the end of each episode, I've asked both you, Brendan, and Tom for your gut call. Mm. Based on your expertise in the polls, I asked you to tell me who you thought would be the 45th president of the United States. We always chose Hillary. Uh, we were wrong. Uh, but we weren't the only ones. The media got it wrong. The public pollsters got it wrong. So did the private ones. The Democratic Party got it wrong. The Republican Party was wrong too. Five living presidents got it wrong. The betting markets got it wrong. The markets got it wrong. Um, by many accounts, even President-elect Donald Trump got it wrong. Uh, I wonder now if Trump is still willing to make claims that the election is rigged. Um, so what does this mean for the future of pollsters and the political elite and the experts who all got it so wrong? Well, I'll leave the polling to Brendan, who knows more about it than I, but I do think that this is a reminder that all too often journalists, particularly in Washington and in Canberra, live in a bubble. We saw that here in this country in 1999, when the broad cross-section of journalists all believed that a republic was inevitable and that the Australian people should support it. And we know the results. The Australian people overwhelmingly rejected the Republican referendum. So we've been here before. The Americans are going through this process now. The British went through this process a few months ago. There is clearly a disconnect between the political and media elite, and I think it's fair to say that Brendan and I are part of that, and ordinary Australians and ordinary Americans. And I'm not sure how you reconcile that gap, but it's clearly evident, particularly in the age of digital media. I agree with all of that. I mean, I've been looking a lot at the Brexit results and trying to think about that in terms of the American situation. Uh, a writer that I respect a lot, Zadie Smith, had this great piece in the New York Review of Books where she said, is there a joy in some of the people who have voted for Brexit of saying, it might be wrong, it might lead to disastrous consequences, but stuff it. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, a bit like you might have that sort of unnecessary drink at a very late hour in the night. You might think, well, you know, it's not going to be good for me, maybe. But um, you know, it, you know, I think, I think you had last night. I, I Michael think, Moore says this was. He predicted, to be fair, Michael Moore predicted a Trump victory, and he said this would be the biggest fu in history. And there's a lot of that. The sense of mm. there's a group of people who've talked to themselves largely about this election and the newspapers that I love to read in the United States, like the New York Times, but they have those papers don't reach out to people who don't have sort of pro-Hillary views. There's been very anti-Trump, uh, that media, I mean, I think, with, for, based on reasonable arguments, but there's a need to have conversations with people that have profoundly different views to yourself. And I think that this is one of the things that really brought this home to me, this election of... You know, to try to find people, whether it be in your family or in your social situations. And if you haven't got those, you've, you know, you've got to think about how you reach out to people who have different views. Because if you're that convinced, as I was, that Trump is the wrong person, type of person to be leading America, you've got to be talking to not just people who are going to reinforce your own view – or to some extent, you know, it becomes a hand-wringing exercise of saying, well, look, you know, I'm, I may have been wrong about all of these polls predictions, but I was right in my heart. Trump isn't, you know, Trump isn't the right type of president for America. Uh, that, that type of argument, I don't think, cuts it when you live in a democratic system. Everyone's vote is equal. 
Well, that brings us to the close of our ninth episode of the Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the Conversation website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. I'd like to say a big, or should I say bigly, thank you to the ever-erudite Tom Switzer and the superbly scholarly Brendan O'Connor, who made the past nine weeks a lot of fun and also made sense of it all for us. Well, it's fun to be wrong. Yeah, it's great working with you, Emma, as well. You've done a fantastic job. Absolutely. It looks like we are in a new world order. Is this the beginning of the end or simply a turning point in American history? Can Trump make America great again? Only time will tell. I'm Emma Lancaster, and thanks for your company. Thank you.